You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of these crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined not with four, three other people. If those of you who are going to watch this, actually, there was two other places for two other people that we're not going to have on today. But I'm with my one good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. Good morning to you. It's good to see you again, buddy. Good morning. Likewise. Oh, man. Well, you know, if you hear a bunch of buzzing sound in my background, I apologize today. This is not normally the case. It is now December. Things are actually starting to cool down. And my wife's just told me she's freezing upstairs. So there's no negotiating on the heater being on right now. And I'm in the basement. So uh, I'll do my best to filter it out. But I got to put my priorities first and uh, put you guys second. Yep. <laughs> so that's the way it is. Well, it's been two weeks. Last time we talked, you know, Omicron was like relatively new. We were talking about, hey, how was Thanksgiving? It was great. And well, you know, you're, while you're having your meal, you saw all these news like percolating about Omicron and it came on fast and quick and it was unknown. And we were like nervous about it. And what could it be? It sounds like within two weeks, we got a fair amount of news. Now, granted, things could change pivot at any point in time. But we got a good amount of news to talk about an update about the Omicron, which seems to be generally it's pretty good news. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Before we get going, the normal stuff. If you're listening, it's your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you're not and you've listened to us for a while and you haven't left a review, please do so. It'd be great. It really helps us, leaves us, uh, inspires us to keep this going. We just got another one on November 29th. It's the day our last one aired from DCBJCNJ. All right, that's that's that that's his her name. I've been listening throughout the pandemic and I've been remiss is not I have been remiss is not leaving a review, right? So it has been fascinating to hear an epidemiologist discuss what he's learned about a novel virus in real time. It has also been reassuring to receive useful, actionable advice on living living life and managing risk during the most significant global crisis of my lifetime. The information is delivered clearly and without the hysteria and sensationalism we get in the headlines. The format, a conversation between a layperson, that's me, <laughs> and an expert is engaging to never dry. As we head into Omicron winter, which I like that, Omicron winter, yeah. <laughs> seems like we just, it was, seems like it was just Delta summer. I will continue to rely on the podcast to stay informed and take reasonable steps to keep myself and my partner safe and healthy. Thank you so much for that review. That's great. Hey, yeah, that's Love great. I really it. appreciate that. It's, I'm glad that somebody enjoys learning about this on the fly with me because it's, sometimes <laughs> I feel like I'm stumbling around in the dark. So <laughs> I feel I feel like we need to get email addresses to be like, you know how when you go into like, okay, I didn't even get this, Stephen, but you go to a graduation ceremony and somebody gives a talk and they're like, there's some honorary doctorate you're given, right? All these honorary doctorates. like, for listening to you, we should give like a little certificate of honorary doctorates to everybody who listens because of just listening to you and getting our own educated understanding of what's going on. So That's thank you, buddy. Generous of you. So, oh yeah, you can support us financially. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. Little as $5 a month. goes a long way. It'll help a lot. And as, as one-time gifts, PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. I think that's all the good news. Let's get into a few things. First thing, before we get into COVID, every once in a while, other things fall in the news. Now, eventually, COVID's going to go from a pandemic to an endemic, and the news is not going to be so sensationalized, and we'll move, hopefully, this podcast, continue it going maybe every other week and do other topics, that kind of stuff. So it's good to kind of get familiar with other things as well. Stephen, you're an expert in the flu, right? Because this is kind of like your your whole PhD. And every once in a while, we, we see this stuff, 
resurfacing its ugly head. This one is interesting. I saw this article saying, did COVID-19 cause flu strain to go extinct? So I read a little bit more about this. This is, I guess, the influenza B Yamagata lineage. I don't know anything about this. I just get my flu vaccine, call it good. Uh, what is this? I know, how much do you know about this? What does this mean? And my biggest question is, okay, I didn't even know how many lineages. So there's four apparently, right? So maybe, maybe we're down to three. Does this make vaccines easier and more effective down the road if we knock out one lineage? Yeah, so I think that the the potential extinction of this particular influenza B strain is it's interesting on a couple of different levels. So to take a step back, there are a lot of different varieties of flu that circulate, but we can the ones that currently circulate or at least have circulated up until recent memory can sort of be split into four large classes. And there are two types of influenza A, which are somewhat closely related to each other, and two types of influenza B, which are a bit more distantly related. Um, from A, they sort of cluster together. And the designations of these things largely have to do with how the virus looks on its surface and therefore how our immune system uh, responds to it. So among the A, there's the A slash H1N1. So you'll remember the 2009 yeah. swine flu pandemic was an H1N1 variety. So this is pretty much a descendant of that. And then there's also an A H3N2 strain, which was circulating prior to the pandemic. And that uh, in that the 2009 pandemic didn't manage to displace, which was interesting because in most previous pandemics, the, the, the previously circulating strain has been displaced, but now we have this sort of co-circulation of two A strains and also two B strains. So the B Victoria and the B Yamagata strains that, that are sort of analogous to the A H1N1 and the A H3N2. So I think that the one that, that you had mentioned was this B Yamagata, um, flu strain. So when we get vaccinated against the flu, we often get vaccinated against multiple strains of flu at once. So up until recently, it was usually a trivalent flu vaccine, which was usually against two types, both of the A types and one of the B types. More recently, there have been quadrivalent flu vaccines that have been protective against all four varieties. But now there, there's this question of, you know, are we going to see this, this flu B strain continue to circulate? Because with the non-pharmaceutical interventions and with whatever else led to the reduction in flu cases, it seems like we haven't really seen much of a resurgence of this particular flu B strain. While we have seen circulation of the others around the world, so we think that this flu strain, if it were around, would have the opportunity to spread, but we haven't seen it yet. So there's a possibility that it may have gone extinct. Which is interesting. So I, I do think that it would help with vaccine formulation. It would mean that we might you know, be able to go back to a trivalent flu vaccine, which would make it a little bit easier to produce. It would make it so that, you know, there are fewer chances for an, a mismatch between the vaccine and the thing that's currently circulating to cause more disease. I do think that the gains would be marginal. In my understanding, the most of the flu that we see is due to the flu A strain. So H1N1 and H3N2 are the things that really tend to cause a lot of the disease. The B strains do cause quite a bit of disease as well, but really the, the A ones seem to be the ones that are sort of the most robust spreaders. And so while it would be helpful, I do still think that the other strains may well just sort of fill in the gap that's provided by the absence of this other strain. But definitely for the sake of producing vaccines more quickly and more effectively, I do think that it uh, would be helpful. Great. I kind of assumed that. I mean, if the strain went missing all of a sudden, I'm guessing it's probably not the strongest one available right now. So it's not yep. going to be that much of a difference. But hey, it's like a little supplement gives us a little bit of boost. Okay. Yep. Helpful information. 
let's get into the COVID stuff. Now, before we get into Omicron, which is kind of the big topic, there's a few other things I came across in the past few days. So we, we've talked about Dr. Osterholm and how respected he is. And he's been back in the news again because of his prediction like 18 months ago or whatever it was he predicted within 18 months or so. About 800,000 deaths in the U.S. And crazily, he's almost like spot on. He might, we're not even at quite the 18-month mark. Maybe we're a few weeks away, and we're probably about 7,000 short from that prediction. So he's back in the surface, in the, in the limelight of the news. And one of the things that he mentioned, and now I just wanted to throw it to you, because I don't even know what this means. Um, it was a short blurb on a video, and he talked about the distinctive, the, the distinction between two types of surges recently. We know, we know the India surge, and we're all we are we, you know last last summer we talked about this, and how it was a, a significant spike went really really high, but then it it plummeted quite quickly once it reached its spike, and then there's the other version, which is kind of the UK, I guess, which is experiencing, which is again a spike, maybe a slight dip. And then maybe then resurrecting its ugly head and, and, then, and then continuing like this a spike for a long period of time. Now, he juxtaposed this with the U.S. saying this summer, the southern U.S. seemed to represent the, the, the India version. And now we're seeing, which I, I was unaware, the northern the part of the U.S. is experiencing kind of the U.K. version. This is that kind of spike and then sustainability. Now, maybe you can help parse this. What does this mean? Is 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 there a way to understand this and predict this? You know, my 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 thing is, oh, it's just again, I'm a layperson, so I'm like, oh, it's just simply a matter of time. Where, you know, in the southern, it was all Delta, right? But in the now, when the northern's hitting, well, it's Delta now Omicron, and so maybe that's the reason why. It's simple as that, or maybe it's more complicated. So, what does this mean for us and for people who are listening about these types of surges? Yeah, so. I love this question uh, because it gets at a lot of sort of fundamentals of infectious disease transmission and also uncovers a lot of what we don't really know. <laughs> so so this is, is actually an area that we in, in my research group are, are beginning to look at in some detail to try to understand sort of what leads to these pretty different experiences with the virus across different places and um, how long will it take places to sort of synchronize in their experience or, or will they ever? Because if we go back to the example of flu, you know, most of the U.S., for example, and really basically temperate regions across the globe are, are pretty well synchronized where we have our flu outbreaks during the wintertime. And there's a little bit of variation in timing, but nothing like what we've been seeing um, with the experience of, you know, these major surges followed by huge declines relative to sort of this sustained degree of transmission. So I think there could be a couple of things going on. You know, the, the first and most obvious element that we don't really have a clear sense of how to measure and how to account for is just differences in human behavior. And so we know for sure that, you know, in, in the southeastern United States, the indoor season tends to be the summer, whereas in the northeastern U.S., it tends to be the winter. And so when people spend time indoors versus outdoors and what the relative fraction of time they spend indoors versus outdoors could play some role in this. And that could you know, help to explain some of the differences between the differences in the experience of the virus in places with different sorts of climates. Some of it may have to do with underlying immunity and the degree to which things like non-pharmaceutical interventions have been put in place. So I've been trying to think of a, of a good analogy for this, but you know, you, you can imagine that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of something like almost like when you're bouncing a basketball, right? Like if you, if you throw it at the ground, it'll keep bouncing 
for a while. Whereas if you sort of gradually drop it to the ground, it's going to take a much longer time to hit the ground, but it'll just sort of like gradually get there. And one of the things that you can see with infectious disease dynamics potentially that could be going on here is that in places that suffer a really major surge, they basically synchronize the immunity of everybody in that population. And so then as immunity wanes, um, that basically everybody sort of has the same degree of immunity and you can reach this point where all of a sudden there can be this new explosive outbreak. Whereas in a place that has a buildup of immunity that's much more gradual, you may end up with sort of this asynchrony between people and their immunity. And so because of that, there's sort of these people who can get reinfected at different points in time, but it's just sort of this much more gradual kind of transition to an endemic virus state. So that could be part of it too. And one of the things we're trying to ask with our with our research is, is to what extent could each of these things be contributing to these different sorts of trajectories that we see in different places? Okay, that's helpful. Yeah, because I, I, I was unaware of that. I know Colorado, we're still kind of slowly coming out of our surge. It's been kind of a little bit ongoing and not quite as fast of a plummet, more sustainable. For us, it's it's... I think it's harder because it's you know again it's the environmental environmental parts of of our state where generally we've been having a pretty warm fall so we've been outside more it's starting to cool off so I could see us having a greater sustained levels now totally random I have forgot this in the show notes but Polis our governor totally I'd even I'd even tell you this I, this is a bold I don't know if you saw it in the news he made a bold statement maybe not bold but he was just like it was good I think. Where he, you know, we're receiving a surge of the of, of of the virus here, and and he just kind of said, "Look, I'm not going to do any more state of emergencies. I'm done with these." Like he's like, "Everybody's had a time to get the vaccine by now. It's been long overdue. Now boosters, mm-hmm. like you know, basically, if you don't want the vaccine, then you're playing that game now." It's like there's been wide availability, right? We've had them all over the place. We've you can get them at Safeway, you can get them at grocery stores, you can get them at, at clinics, you can go to outdoor events. We've did our best to make them widely available to the whole state. And now it's to the point where, you know what? I'm wiping my hands clean. I'm no more state of emergencies. Now local levels, they can do whatever they want, feel free, you know, report about counties. They can do whatever they want, but as a state level, that part is done. And it got a lot of press and over the past couple of days. And, you know, my intuition is felt like that's probably a good a good decision at this point in time. You know, it's it's now just like if you chose not to get the vaccine, now he totally acknowledges, of course you can get breakthroughs with the vaccine, but it is much more rare. He said that's something about like in our hospitals right now, I think only sixteen percent, between thirteen and sixteen percent of those hospitalized are vaccinated, right? So we're talking about the overwhelming population run vaccinated. Right. So, so we're seeing the sustainability right now. And now things are going to cool off. You can hear my heater in the background, right? That people are going to more indoors. So I could see it then continuing a little bit longer and those kind of things. So yeah, that's definitely. helpful. Great. Okay, so let's continue on. One thing I wanted we talked about, this might be a short conversation. I just saw this Atlantic and not quite sure why they posted this article because to me it felt, seemed really relatively easy answer. They said, why are we still isolating vaccinated people for 10 days? I just had a friend who, who is vaccinated, got COVID, and you know asked to be quarantined for 10 days. I haven't really thought much about this. I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, because even though I've heard things like, oh, when you're vaccinated, you can you know, shed the virus quicker. You're contagious less, so that makes sense of being, being you know, quarantined for less. But we also hear that there are people who remain contagious for. So I'm just assuming we just say ten days because, hey, some people are still contagious. But is there is this more nuanced than I'm actually thinking? Is this something that you guys are discussing? Like, hey, we should we should knock this down for people who are vaccinated. 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think you're right. Like from, from what I've seen, you know, we've, we've done some work that suggests that, that people who are vaccinated may clear the virus on, on average more quickly, but you're right. Like there, there will be some number of people who still retain the virus and are still infectious for a number of days. And sort of that 10 days sort of captures the range when we expect people to be potentially infectious to others. I, I didn't get to read the article, but I, I would, <laughs> I would actually maybe even go, uh, a step further and say, you know, why are we isolating anyone for 10 days at baseline in because what I think we should be doing is using tests to spring people from isolation. So I do think some people will need to be isolated for 10 days or even more if they continue to test positive on a rapid antigen test, which indicates that they may be infectious. But I do think that we could probably spring a lot of people vaccinated or not from their isolation period if they have a sequence of negative rapid antigen tests suggesting that they're past their infectious period. And so I think that there are ways where we could be a lot smarter about this using the tools that we have available to reduce the amount of time that people are in isolation. And, you know, isolating is, is pretty disruptive. You know, it's like, yeah. I think when we, you know, when we think about it, like, you know, okay, like 10 days, you, you get COVID or whatever, you know, like, but, but, you know, for, and family with kids or for anybody, like when you actually think about like being stuck in your house for 10 days, like it's not fun, especially if you're like feeling okay. And, and so it is important for reducing spread, but I do think that there are a lot of things we could do given the technology we have available to reduce the isolation period to only the span of time that it needs to be. Great. Well, that's a perfect segue because we're going to continue this discussion right now with that in light of the holiday travel. You said you just did a Q and a a live Q&A about holiday travel. And the reason why I think it's the perfect segue is I'm guessing these tests might be part of the equation for good holiday travel. Because So maybe first talk about like what you talked about and how to prepare for holiday travel, do it safely, be able to see friends and family. And I want you to dovetail this with what we just talked about, that if, for instance, you do get COVID, right, how could you use antigen tests to then best conclude that you're okay to go out. So we know they're not perfectly effective. So do you couple them with other things? Do you do two every other day? And then we get two native. How do you, how does that formula fit into like check off the box? Hey, I just got COVID. It's 10 days before Christmas. I'm able, I'm, I'm okay to see my grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, taking the first bit about sort of how can we think about holiday travel and gatherings this year, my advice even in the context of Omicron is pretty similar to what I've said for holiday gatherings before, which is sort of in, in this order, you know, get vaccinated and get boosted if you're able. Then think a lot about ventilation. Make sure that windows are cracked, fans are on, maybe even have a air filter with a HEPA filter in it if, if that's within your means. Um, maybe a leaf blower. Maybe a leaf blower. Turn on that leaf blower. Yeah, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> that's right. Why not? Why and not? Uh, yeah, and then uh, take a rapid test before. So one of the things that I, I didn't realize until this week, but might be useful for a number of our listeners who are out in Colorado, that apparently... Um, the state makes rapid tests available for free that you can get repeatedly. So I thought originally this was just a one-time thing, but I do think that you can get basically four boxes of the Abbott Binax Nows, I think every week or every other week. You have to go on online and sort of fill out a form. So it's it's a little bit of a pain, but it takes about 10 minutes to get, you know... A, like four boxes of rapid tests every yeah. week. And I think that that's, and you know, that that's what we should be doing everywhere. I did that. It's great. Like I, 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 it's a little complicated because I signed up me and I thought I was doing my family, but I guess each in a person, each individual person has to sign up. So if you have kids, you sign them up, I think. 
So I just signed myself up, got two boxes right away. And then I'll sign the rest of the kids. I'll probably another, you know, six boxes and keep them coming. So it's pretty yeah. great, great, awesome thing to have yeah. in hand. Yeah. It's so wonderful. Yep. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's great. And so, you know, now is the time if you haven't gotten them yet, you know, get some of these rapid tests and take them before your gatherings, take them before you travel. And, you know, I, at this point to travel, I think, I think you need a negative test within 24 hours. And so the rapid tests are really helpful for that kind of thing. And I think that all of those things, even in the context of Omicron can go a long way towards keeping us all safe. I think that, you know, Omicron is definitely coming. We're starting to see increases in the proportion of cases that are Omicron, especially here in the Northeast. It will spread across the country. My hope is that here in the U.S., we that the, the major Omicron surges will wait until just after the holidays to really get rolling. But right now we still have a lot of Delta around too. You know, it's like Omicron is not the only thing to be concerned about at the moment. We've got a lot of Delta spreading at the moment too. But whether it's Delta or Omicron, all of these things do seem to be helpful towards preventing spread. So so that's that's what I would suggest. Now, if you do get COVID, I think that, you know, certainly, you know, continuing to test to see when you test negative repeatedly, I wouldn't to to spring yourself from quarantine, I wouldn't trust a single negative test. I would probably trust two negative rapid tests, three even better. And so, you know, that's that's already a lot of tests. But but mainly, what I would say is just just talk to your doctor because at this point, you know, they'll be able to to guide you through your own particular situation. And there's so much nuance and that has to do not only with you know your own medical condition, but the people you might end up seeing and the amount of spread that's happening in your community at base. Line. So I don't think that there's any sort of hard and fast rule that I can give to, to everyone that will apply in all of their situations. But I do think that between all of the conversations that we've had on this podcast about rapid tests and sort of the role that they play, that they don't give you certainty either way, but that they do increase the odds of, you know, your actual scenario lining up with what the test is telling you. And and so hopefully uh, between all of those discussions, you know, people will be able to interpret the results of their tests in a way that is is useful for whatever whatever context they're in this holiday season. Great. And you helped me because we were wondering if we had, you know, being safe before we see my mother-in-law a couple weeks ago. And you suggested, which was helpful because obviously those antigen tests aren't hundred percent and never will be, nor the PCR ones, but to take not only two different tests, but if you can't from two different manufacturers, just to, yeah. to help that, that'll help as well to continue to increase your odds of having the right conclusion. You know, yeah. so yep. that was helpful. So if you really want to go out of your way buy two different versions and then you can it, it just, just helps even more to feel yeah. a little bit, be, a little bit better about the, the conclusion. Yep. So I know Omicron's on our, on our minds. One more thing, cause this is related to the antigen tests. We didn't talk about this two weeks ago. The antiviral pill is coming out for COVID and this is super exciting because gosh, it's just a remarkable pill, like something about like 80 some percent prevention of, of hospitalizations. It's, it's, you know, it's on the verge of like, like the vaccine, right? But except for you already, you get COVID first and it, and it makes you better quicker. This is exciting. Maybe coming out in January. I'm not sure who it'll be available for, how readily available it'll be, but this hinges again on the same thing because kind of like that Tamiflu for the flu, I think same thing. You have to take it pretty closely right after you have symptoms. Otherwise it's not nearly as effective. Same for this. So like this pill, I think it's, is it Merck or I'm not sure what it is, uh, which one it is that it's, that it's coming out. But there's, there are two, we can get into that in a moment, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then, yeah, but I think it's within six days or five or six days of symptoms. You have to take it. Otherwise it's not nearly effective. So you've got to have these things on hand 
like these quick or be able to get a PCR test really quickly if you want to take this these pills and really lessen the symptoms. So carry you can fill in the blanks. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, to my knowledge, there are there are sort of two of these antiviral pills that are coming out. So there's one that's produced by Merck and one that's produced by Pfizer. So the interim results from Merck were looking pretty promising, but actually their their conclusions from the final trial were okay, but not as good. Maybe that it was like thirty percent effective against hospitalizations. But the Pfizer one is is looking much better. I, th- I think that may be the one that you're referring okay. to here, where it is like on the order of eighty to ninety percent effective against uh, preventing hospitalizations, which is incredible. And I think it's it's really worth taking a step back that, like, with both um, like pharmaceutical drugs and vaccines, like something that can reduce your risk of hospitalization or death by that much is like that's. Pretty pretty amazing. And so I think it's it's wonderful that we that we have these things available and and we'll have them coming online very soon. But but you're right. The 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 difficulty as with Tamiflu is that you need to know if you've been infected pretty early on because you need to start taking the drug within a couple of days after really after infection. And yeah, basically, the sooner you get on them, the, the the better chance they have to work. So, so that really just again just underscores the need for testing, and for it, it makes it all the more important to do the sorts of things that we've been hoping for. That you know, people might test themselves with a rapid antigen test frequently, so that they can know. And and so, I do think that you know, again, if you do start showing symptoms, get tested as quickly as you can, and and, and that will really help to not only guide your own behavior, but now to guide what sort of treatment you might get. Yeah. Yeah. This is where it gets also just crazy complicated because like COVID symptoms, colds, RSV, flu, like they, they all have the same kind of symptoms. So, I mean, you know, you could have the sniffles for a day. It could be allergies and like, you know, at 1250 a pop for an antigen test, unless you got a big budget, it's hard to like, okay, oh, you know, I'm feeling a little sniffles. I should probably just get checked, you know, do an antigen right. test. I just, I'm just hoping these things come down like yeah. by another 80% where, you know, you can take these and then quickly be able to, you know, start taking yeah. something like this just to be on as an insurance policy. And by yeah. the way, I got boosted on, on Thursday. So I got my booster Moderna. I'm pretty, feeling pretty excited about it. Didn't really affect hey. me much. I know it laid you out, Stephen, but yeah. it didn't do too much for me. I felt a little fatigue, but I'm not fully, still hasn't fully revved up my system, but I'm feeling good about that next step. That's great. Okay. So finally, let's get into Omicron. So just spew the beans, Stephen, like where are we at with Omicron? Is it as bad as we thought it was going to be? Is it less? What do we know? It sounds like we know a lot more information than we did two weeks ago. Yeah, definitely. We, we have learned a lot in these last two weeks, which is great. There is still a lot left to learn, but we're in a much better spot in terms of what we know about the virus and about this particular variant now than we were when we first started talking about it. So as I think mentioned the last time, I think I mentioned the last time, there was sort of this order of events where we were going to first learn about antibody neutralization. And then the next thing we would learn about is transmissibility. And then the last thing we would learn about is severity. So a lot of the big news lately has come from the immune response, the, the neutralizing ability of our antibodies against the virus. And as expected, the virus does a really good job of getting around our immune response. The mutations that it has really just helps it helps to disguise it from our antibodies. But there have been a couple of, of reasonably promising studies that suggest that getting a booster dose, whether you've been previously infected or had a previous set of doses of any of the vaccines, that the booster dose can go a really long way towards preventing you, basically for giving you protection against the Omicron variant. Even though the booster dose is still the same old 
you know, vaccine that we've yeah. had uh, for months, which is great news. Now, there's some variation from study to study in just how much that boost gives you. So there was a study from Pfizer that suggested that the booster dose basically, you know, restores your neutralizing antibody levels, meaning that, you know, the ability of your immune system to recognize and essentially eradicate the virus back up to levels of two doses against the original founding SARS-CoV-2 strains. Now, there are a number of other studies that are not quite as rosy as that, <laughs> that suggest that the Omicron will still take a hit in booster neutralizing activity, but that definitely getting a booster is much better than not having a booster. So, so that story seems to be fairly consistent. The other important thing to note is that most of the information that we have so far on the immune response against Omicron has to do with these neutralizing antibodies. So it's this one particular arm of our immune response that recognizes the virus and prevents it from binding to cells. But of course, that's, there are a lot of other elements of our immune response that are harder to measure and that we think actually probably play an even larger role in preventing against symptomatic disease, hospitalization, and death. Mm -hmm. And usually those arms of the immune system are more broadly protective. They're able to identify a wider range of variants than these specific neutralizing antibodies that sort of attach to these very precise pieces of the viral surface. And so I think that there's a lot of reason to hope that our protection against symptomatic disease and especially hospitalization and death, given previous immunity, either through infection and or vaccination will still hold relatively strongly against the Omicron variant. But that, again, is something that we're, we're still on the early stages of gathering information about. So another thing, so transmissibility. So we know that Omicron can spread like wildfire. We know that it's taking off, that it took off not only in South Africa, but that it's been taking off in the UK, and we've started to see surges here in the Northeastern US. So it's definitely, it's coming and it is spreading and it is spreading well. There's still some uncertainty as to what exactly is behind its increased transmissibility. So basically the two possibilities is first that by getting around our immune system, it's able to infect people and to spread more easily, even in people with some level of protection. Or second, that it's just more inherently contagious, that it's able to bind to ourselves a little bit more easily. There, you know, part of the question is like, to what extent does it matter? Um, it does yeah. matter some because whichever one of those things it is will change the way that the virus behaves in different populations with different degrees of immunity, with different types of immunity, who have had different experiences with different variants. So I do think it's an important question, but but it's pretty clear at this point that Omicron will be able to spread very rapidly just about anywhere it goes. And so sort of in the transmissibility box, there, there's a big old check that it's it is definitely more transmissible. And, uh, and so that's going to be something we're going to have to deal with in the coming months for sure. And so the big question now is, is severity. And I, I think that at this point, we would probably know if Omicron was catastrophically more severe than previous variants. But I don't think we're at a point where we can conclusively say whether it is equally or less severe than things that have come before it. So um, again, there had been some early reports suggesting that some clinical cases of Omicron were not as severe. Um, but that can be confounded by all sorts of different things, whether it's, you know, that it took off in younger age groups first, or it happened to take off in a previously vaccinated and immunized population. And so that the underlying immunity was protecting those people from being as severe as the disease might've been in previous waves. And then one of the other things that's sort of been spread around is, um, basically just comparing cases 
versus hospitalizations in this surge relative to cases versus hospitalizations in previous surges and saying like, oh, well, you know, it's there, there is a lower fraction of hospitalizations to cases at this point in the surge than there were in previous surges. But the issue there is that Omicron is so much more transmissible that we're seeing a much sharper rise in cases. And so it might not be that there are fewer hospitalizations per case. It's just that there are so many more cases so early on that the people haven't had a chance to get sick yet. And so, so I think we're still at the very early stages of understanding the severity of Omicron. And I'm, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as some have been about the potential for Omicron to be less severe. But I am grateful that it doesn't seem like it's, you know, much, much more severe than things that we've seen previously. So so that's something we're going to have to continue to watch pretty closely. And the last thing to note with this is that, as as one of my colleagues, Bill Hannage, recently said, even the common cold would be catastrophic if everybody got it at exactly the same time. Because, you know, the common cold does cause hospitalizations, it causes pneumonia in older age groups. And if everybody got it within the same two weeks, like that would cause a huge burden on our health system and it would be a public health event of, you know, unprecedented scale. And so even if we end up with an Omicron variant that is no more severe than the common cold, if it's able to infect the world within an order of a couple of weeks, it's still going to be something we're going to have to contend with on a large scale. So so I think that really just underscores the need for boosters for thinking about masking when in indoor spaces and, you know, thinking about all of these plans we talked about with our holiday gatherings. We got to have all our tools on the table to help us against this coming surge. Man, so helpful. Okay, two things. Number one, this is why you were saying two weeks ago how like, quick news is probably bad news, right? <clears throat> so, like, you know, if it was catastrophic, we'd probably hear really quickly on, like, oh man, this is right. crazy, crazy. So, this good news, it may not be catastrophic. The other thing it kind of remind me of, like, it's like me with like hands on stuff. Like, I'm a tech guy. I. I loathe, I literally loathe working on my house, like on any level, even if it's hanging a picture frame on the wall, I will delay it as long as I can. Cause I do not want to get the hammer and nail because I feel it's going to take me eight hours to figure out how to level this thing. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like when I get my hands and try to work on something, right. The more I work on it in the house, the actually, the more complicated it becomes and the more problematic and the more fix it has to become. So it used to be a small problem. Usually when I address it now, it's a much bigger problem because now it's the original problem. Now my problem on top of it added on, there's more holes in the wall. Now we have to putty because I, I missed a bunch of places. It's like, and now I say this tongue in cheek, Stephen, because this is clearly not what I'm saying. It's like, oh, I missed the good old days, the end of the pandemic when life was simple, right? Where oh, it was just a yeah. pandemic. But now it's like, it's so much better, but it's so much more complicated because now yeah. we have vaccines and boosters and how does that mix and match? And how, and so it's just, I don't know how you guys deal with this stuff as an epidemiologist, as, as things begin to unfold, like, okay, now we have 18,000 more variables we got to look at and figure out how that yeah. works. I mean, again, I'm grateful. Me, I'm grateful. Your life, it makes way more complicated. <laughs> yes, it does. But I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's why we that's do what we do. <laughs> so the, the last thing then, I think the last thing well, I'll is, is, is still on this. So this idea of the, okay. We talked about this off the air, and this is where I'm reading a lot of the news of what you were just saying, how, oh, hey, the good news about the boosters, it seems that it skyrockets the antibodies so intensely that it it seems like it's covering the Omicron variant. So when I keep reading this, I get confused because what you've taught me, and because it sounds like, oh, well, it's all about antibody response in general, like just vomit antibodies and you're good to go. If that's the case, then any vaccine would take care of anything if you could just can't get antibodies revved up, but that's not the case, right? So this is where it seems really complicated for me. Okay, it's the same old vaccine. It's revving antibody, but because of this, because of the antibody response, it seems like it's going to cover the Omicron, which is highly mutated. Do you see where I'm like, 
I see is I see a disconnect. And can you help us fill in the gaps of that can't be the full story? Yeah, totally. So our immune system, the different arms of our immune system vary in large part based on how specific their vision is for a a given virus. So there's there's some parts of our immune system, the the antibodies that we normally think of that have these very precise molecular configurations that allow them to detect very precise structures on the surface of a virus. And so those antibodies are really good at seeing exactly when you've been infected with, you know, something that's really closely related to something you've been infected with previously or have been vaccinated against. But they can get easily duped by these small changes on the surface of the virus and sort of render them unable to bind to the virus and unable to prevent the virus from infecting our cells. But then there are different parts of our immune system that sort of like get the gist of the virus, but they don't, you know, they're they're not necessarily so specific. And because of that, it can take them a longer time to respond. It takes them a little while longer. They sort of have to sit back and consider the virus for a while and say like, "Ah, is this, is this something we should be concerned about or not? And then, and then ultimately, you know, if it's the virus starts to increase and as more other parts of the immune response start to get revved up, they're like, okay, yeah, this is, this is something that we really need to be worried about to attack and to respond to. And so they're, they're, you can sort of think of them as a little bit slower, but also able to be a little bit more flexible in their response, able to identify sort of wider ranges of virus. And then there are other parts of our immune response that are just totally, they basically just protect you against everything. They're like, I don't know what it is, but we're just going to like go out there and just like try to eat up whatever we see that doesn't <laughs> yeah. look like me. And, and so... so all of these different things are in play. Now, vaccines are... Um, really good at eliciting very specific types of antibody responses. And especially a single dose of a vaccine is really good at getting these sort of like highly specific antibodies revved up and sort of stored away in your memory. One of the ways that I like to think about vaccination, I think that we talk about immune memory as sort of a metaphor for how the immune system works. But I think that it's, you know, I've, I've found that metaphor to be incredibly rich because I think that it, it, thinking about the immune system as something that has a memory really does go a long way towards helping us understand what the immune system is doing. So. One of the ways that I like to think of a vaccine is like, say you have this like really complicated image, this picture that you're being shown. It's basically a picture of the virus, but you could imagine anything. And what the vaccine does is it it, it flashes that picture before the immune system's eyes very briefly. And so it gives us this like quick moment to say like, okay, this is what the virus looks like. And with two doses of the vaccine, we essentially got two very rapid flashes of that. But if you were shown like a really quick image, you know, you would see a couple of sort of general characteristics of the virus. You might really notice one specific detail. And if it were flashed before your eyes really quickly, you'd probably pinpoint on that exact same spot twice, because whatever you noticed first, your eyes would be trained to what it had seen. Now, if instead you had been flashed that image twice, and then six months later, I came up to you and flashed that same image again, you'd probably focus on a different part because your mind has had time to sort of process what it had seen. And it wouldn't remember the fact that it got sort of so distracted by this one piece of the viral surface, but instead it'll you know notice some other feature about the picture that it didn't see before. And that's the value of these vaccines that are spaced out over longer periods of time, because as your immune system gets these flashes of exposure to the virus, and as they're spaced out over longer periods of time, it allows your immune system to sort of mature in the meantime, and to forget, which is also a really important part of the immune response, so that when it gets revved back up, it can notice a different part of the virus. And so essentially what we're doing is we're trying to sort of give it these images of the virus from different angles, which also happens when you get infected. And so because of that, it sort of builds up this 
sort of entire repertoire of protection against different pieces of the virus. And so they're still very specific to SARS-CoV-2. Um, just ramping up antibodies as, as, as such doesn't really give us much protection against things that aren't SARS-CoV-2 for the same reason that a flu vaccine doesn't protect us against COVID-19. But nevertheless, you know, getting these repeated exposures will help us over time to broaden our immune response, even against things that our immune system hasn't seen before, as long as they're sufficiently closely related. That's great. Hit the nail on the head. I really felt super educated. I think I earned my honorary doctorate again. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. No I problem. Appreciate it. I hope by hitting the nail on the head, I didn't make too many holes in your wall that you have to fill up with putty. <laughs> yeah, <I'm doing> well. <laughs> too yeah. late for that, man. Swiss cheese yeah. in this house. So great. That's perfect. We'll end there. Appreciate Stephen. We'll be back again in two weeks. Again, if you can uh, leave a review, please do so. It inspires us. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast for monthly subscriptions, as well as one-time gifts through PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of us, if you have questions for us, Matt at livingthereal.com. I will forward them on to Stephen and Mark. I know Mark hasn't been here forever. He's been busy, 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 but we hope to get him on sometime, at least one time soon. And if you want to get a hold of Stephen, you can do follow him on Twitter which is awesome, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R. And I think that's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you guys, I think, after Christmas now. So for those of you who celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, all the holidays. Have a wonderful season. Take care. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye-bye.